0: Good morning. Let's go ahead and we're just going to start with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for oh, so many things, so many things to thank you for. But as we uh, come to our time of, well, the sermon and the preaching of your word, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and, um, that the things you want us to know, you have given us to know, and that you've presented them um, in your word. Father, thank you that you uh, don't just give us the word and expect us to make sense of it, but you also give us the the strength and the power and the wisdom and the light uh, to do that uh, through the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit dwelling in us uh, as a gift we receive from your Son. Uh, Thank you for... The special privilege it is to turn to your word and to find you in it for the special privilege it is that you are dwelling in us and enlightening us and helping us to make sense of these things, Father, as we hear what you have to say, um, God help us to grow in our affection for you, grow in our affection for one another, that you would be shaping us and molding us and conforming us. Uh, Into the image of your son and into what we were made to be. Lord, we know, I know that in a room like this, uh, there are so many different stories, different hardships, different victories, uh, struggles, and strengths and triumphs that we bring into this place. And um, God, help us to not leave them in the parking lot. Uh, but to bring them to you knowing that you are a good God and a great God and you are more than strong enough and capable enough to to meet us and help us in our needs. Um, and God, one of, the, one of the chief ways you do that is through your word. So as again we turn to your word, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak through me, and that our hearts would be receptive to what you would say. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, every Sunday, I uh, consider it a privilege, I really do, to join with you all in worship. Um, And I consider it a special privilege when I'm given the opportunity to preach God's Word. We will be continuing this morning with our series on the book of Hebrews. Through Hebrews 1 through 4, Ben has preached on the supremacy of Christ over angels, the vital nature of Jesus' humanity, and our Lord's superiority over Moses. Last week, we were encouraged to not drop the ball, or, you might say, some might say, in the words of famous theologian Steve Perry, don't stop believing. This morning's passage is Hebrews 4.14 through Hebrews 5.10, if you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews 4.14 in order to follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You could also probably read along on your Bible or some kind of tablet. And of course, you could follow along on the screen behind me. Again, we're going to be reading from Hebrews 4.14 through Hebrews 5.10. It says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in what we have just read the author to the hebrews is offering a solution to a problem. Now, what theme or subject has that passage hebrews 4:14 4, through 5:10 focused on? maybe you know the answer just from reading it. if you're not sure, look again and see for yourself. it is the high priesthood of jesus. in the words, the opening words in Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. In just a a few short verses, high priest is mentioned five times. And every single one of these verses in this passage is related to the subject. Jesus is our great high priest. Now ask yourself, is this the solution or the problem? Is the high priesthood of Jesus the solution or the problem in need of a solution? The answer may be fairly obvious. Jesus's high priesthood is the solution. It is being offered as the solution. And this answer leaves us with two questions. First, what is the problem? What is the problem that needs to be solved? What is the problem that can only be solved by Jesus as the high priest? So that's the first. What's the problem? Second, how does Jesus solve the problem as high priest? Not as the son of God, not as the Lord of creation, but specifically as high priest. So we have two questions. What is the problem and how does Jesus as high priest uniquely function to solve that problem? These two questions will guide us toward a proper understanding of this text because ultimately the book of Hebrews is not an academic paper as complicated as it might seem. It is a pastoral plea The author of Hebrews isn't simply teaching that Jesus is our high priest as a nice bit of information to kick around in our heads. He is wielding this particular doctrine because it is the precise instrument that will cure these Christians of what ails them. In doing this, the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to two more figures. He's already been compared to angels and he has been compared to Moses and he has been found better than both. Here he's comparing, obviously, Jesus to the office of high priest and the high priest of Israel. He's also, however, comparing him to Joshua. We didn't see that in our passage this morning. It's in Hebrews 4, 8, and 9, and it's easy to overlook, so we're going to go ahead and read that. Hebrews 4, 8, and 9 simply says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. If we're going to understand what Jesus as high priest has to do with this passage, these people, the the letter of Hebrews was written to, we need to understand what Joshua has to do with it. So who was Joshua? If you're familiar with the Old Testament... Well, Joshua was just up here a moment ago, and he does a lot of other things. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament, right, you'll know that Joshua was the leader of Israel after Moses died. Moses leads them out of Egypt. Joshua comes in. After Moses dies, he's Joshua, the son of Nun, N-U-N, Joshua, the son of Nun. And he was one of the two spies. If you know this story, he's one of two of the two Israelite spies who they go up to the edge of the promised land. They look in and they see giants and they say, let's go get them. And the other 10 were scared. Joshua was a mighty warrior who led the Israelites in battle, even while Moses was still alive. And after Moses' death, Joshua led the Israelites' conquest through Canaan. Joshua's relationship to this text is his relationship to the problem faced by the original recipients of Hebrews. So what's the problem? The problem is that the people are suffering. They are suffering and need rest. And as Hebrews 4.8 tells us, Joshua did not give rest. That's not the rest that they're looking for, but rest is what they are after. In Hebrews 4.11, the author exhorts his readers to strive, zealously make every effort to enter rest. Hebrews 4.1 says that the people should fear the possibility of failing to reach rest. Hebrews 3:12 and 13 warn against hardened, unbelieving hearts led astray by the deceitfulness of sin, because it is the disobedient and unbelieving, according to Hebrews 3:18 and 19. It is the disobedient and unbelieving who fail to enter rest. It is undeniable that the author of Hebrews has rest on his mind. And so it is inconceivable that this notion of rest would not play a key role in Hebrews 4.14 and beyond. With pastoral wisdom and care, he is speaking to the needs of his people. Earlier in Hebrews 2.1-3, he warns the people not to drift away from the gospel. He warns against the danger of neglecting such a great salvation as the one offered by Jesus. Now, the only reason he would warn against drifting from the gospel is because these people were at risk of doing just that. Faced with pressure, there were some who were considering turning their backs on Jesus. They were suffering as a direct consequence of their faith, And that caused them to waver on their convictions. And that is absolutely the case for many Christians today. While I think it is safe to assume that most of us have not suffered as a direct consequence of our faith, at least not an extended suffering, it's extremely likely that some of us have wavered in our convictions in order to avoid suffering. And we, too, must be careful lest we drift away. And that rest we seek drives us away from Christ. Now, unfortunately for many of us, we've grown accustomed to a Christianity that costs us very little. We may have even come to faith in an environment that treated God like a nice warm blanket whose only purpose is to comfort and satisfy you. We teach and believe in a God who shows up when you need him, but otherwise makes no demands of you because that would be mean. If that is part of your theology, if you believe that God is essentially a nice warm blanket who exists to comfort and satisfy you, rather than a fire and a hammer and an anvil who will conform you to his image and sanctify you, you will be unequipped to suffer for Christ. And when you do face suffering, you will be tempted to walk away because the God you thought you could trust to take care of you has failed to measure up to your small, tiny, weak, feeble standard for him. The Bible says God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Who can know the mind of the Lord? There are places and things in our world that we know nothing about. Even with all our technology and fantastic innovations, there are places we have never been, never seen, never studied, never searched. When the Bible tells us that God's greatness is unsearchable, remember how little the entire human race knows about the ocean. So God uses suffering as part of his plans, and we can't always see or understand why But he does. And we can be sure that suffering isn't the goal. Rest is. Rest is the goal, and it is why rest is stressed in Hebrews. It's important that we are on the same page with how we define rest, because it is a simple word with shades of meaning, and as I will show you in a little bit, the meaning here in Hebrews is not one that we commonly use. Before going into this specific, maybe even a bit technical use of the word rest, I want to say that rest in the Bible as a word does often just mean rest. Lying down, taking a break, not working. Exodus 34.21 gives instructions regarding the Sabbath, which was a day of rest. Exodus 34.21 says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. So when rest is given opposite to work like that, it is clear that the plain meaning rest is understood. But in the book of Hebrews, rest is not best understood in this way. Rest in Hebrews is connected to the ruling presence of God. Rest in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere in Scripture is God's ruling presence. In God's ruling presence, strivings and sufferings cease. But that is a consequence of entering into God's rest, not the cause or condition of it. You do not have rest because your enemies are gone and your troubles have disappeared. You have rest when you have entered into the ruling presence of the living God. To see why rest should be understood as God's ruling presence, we'll look again back at Hebrews 3 and 4. Hebrews 3 and 4, quote from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95, we covered this last week, but Psalm 95 refers to events that happened after exodus after the exodus from egypt and you can read about these things in the book of exodus and the book of numbers god had rescued the israelites out of slavery in egypt with a strong hand a mighty arm working signs and miracles and wonders and he was leading them into the promised land the promised land promised by god the very same god who had just delivered them out of egypt and yet and yet the people rebelled They don't believe, they don't trust, they rebel against God, and they were cursed to die in the wilderness. So the generation that left Egypt was forbidden from entering the promised land. In Psalm 95, and Hebrews 3 and 4, the promised land is equated with rest. Failing to enter the promised land is failing to enter rest. And this connection between rest and the promised land is all over the Old Testament. Here are a few examples. Deuteronomy 12:10 and 12 says, but when you go over the Jordan, that would, that's a river that would have bordered the promised land. So when you cross this border into the promised land, when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord, your God is giving you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety down to verse 12, you shall rejoice before the Lord, your God. Deuteronomy 25:19 says, When the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek. Again, in Joshua 1:13, we read, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Now, reading all of those verses together might lead you to believe that entering the promised land was the rest they were promised. But Hebrews makes it clear that is not the case. Again, Hebrews 4, 8 says, if Joshua, who had led them into the promised land, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The implications of this verse verse should be obvious. Joshua led the people into the promised land, but Joshua was unable to give them rest. Why? Now, this is where the comparison to the high priest becomes significant. I said at the beginning that there was a comparison to Joshua and the comparison to the high priest. Here's where the high priest comes in. Hebrews 4.14 calls Jesus a great high priest. The high priest was responsible for offering sacrifices to atone for the sins of himself and the people. Hebrews 5-3 says, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Now Hebrews 5-3 is speaking about the normal service of the high priest who had been serving since the time of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother, who was the first high priest when the people came out of Egypt. But this verse is talking about the normal high priest having to make sacrifices for their own sins and for the sins of the people. We know that Jesus did not have to make sacrifices for his own sins because we know that he was sinless. But Aaron and his sons, because the priesthood was passed on by family through sons... Aaron and his sons would offer sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people, and it's important that we understand and have a picture in our minds of where this would have been taking place, which was the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, it's really not that complicated. I should have had a diagram. I just, that's okay. It's not that complicated. The tabernacle is made of three parts. The, the outermost part was the courtyard. It's open air, uncovered, but it's separated from outside by portable tent walls, poles and canvas. I should know what material it was, but portable tent walls. And all of Israel's sacrifices would have at least one portion of the process taking place in the courtyard. So you have the courtyard, and in the courtyard you have the altar, which, I've heard this recently, was like a giant holy grill. Because what did you do on the altar? You burned a lot of animals. It was a giant, it was similar to a giant grill. And honestly, the, pur- the purpose, or part of the purpose of burning and grilling these animals was so that they would smell good. So I'm not making this up. It's, it's, and then they would eat a lot, of the, a lot of these offerings, a lot of these sacrifices. So it really is, do with that, do with that what you will. But it's a, it's a lot like a, a giant holy grill. And that's located in the courtyard. Any Israelite could enter into the courtyard. And then within the courtyard, there was a tent. And sometimes this tent is referred to as the tent of meeting. And this tent has two rooms. Two rooms, one in the front, one in the back, separated by a very large veil. The first of these rooms was called the holy place. And some of the regular sacrifices of Israel required the high priest to enter the holy place and sprinkle blood. Incense was also burnt as an offering in the holy place Now only the priests could enter the holy place So you have outer courtyard holy place veil and behind the veil. You probably know you have the holy of holies God's presence was in the holy of holies His presence wasn't limited to the holy of holies, but god did truly appear within the holy of holies And with this three-part structure, hopefully hopefully, loosely established in your mind, it's going to be important to know how the Israelites themselves and other ancient people around them who had their own temples thought of the temples or the tabernacle they built. The temple, or in this case, the tabernacle, the tent, was like a holy palace. It was a holy palace. It was a dwelling place for God on earth. Not because God needed a place to rest his head, but in order that God's people could meet with him. And the Holy of Holies was God's earthly throne room. Psalm 132 brings these ideas together. In the first five verses of Psalm 132, we find lyrics that recount King David's desire to build a temple for the Lord. And then in Psalm 132, verse 7, it says, Let us go to his dwelling place... Let us worship at his footstool. The dwelling place is the temple and his footstool would be attached to his throne. So we're to see the temple as the place from which God rules and reigns as a king on his throne. The very next verse, Psalm 132 verse 8 says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark, the ark of the covenant, the ark of your might. Again, the temple here is spoken of as God's resting place and the ark located in the Holy of Holies is mentioned. There's room for debate, but a good case can be made that the Israelites viewed the ark as God's footstool. The ark of the covenant was his footstool. Psalm 132 puts those two in parallel. In the one verse in verse 7, the footstool is mentioned. The very next verse, the ark, is mentioned. In 1 Chronicles 28.2, Uh, Which this Psalm is almost certainly linked with, David, King David, speaks about his desire to build a temple, and he says for the Lord or I'm sorry, he says that he's wanting to build a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant and God's footstool. So David's saying it in First Chronicles, we're reading it in Psalm one hundred thirty two, and then at the end here in in verses thirteen and fourteen, we read, For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So the tabernacle is God's resting place, not because it's where he goes to take a nap, but because it's where, in a manner of speaking, he rests on his throne and rules. God's rest is his ruling presence made tangible in the tabernacle and particularly within the Holy of Holies behind that veil. So the tabernacle was comprised of the outer courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And only the high priest, the high priest is coming back, only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies. And even then, the high priest only entered once a year with very special instructions. This once a year dangerous approach is a bit reminiscent to maybe help you Fill this out even a little more of the story of Esther. If you know the story of Esther, a big part of her story is that she has the courage to approach the throne of the king, King Ahasuerus. She has the courage to approach the throne uninvited because she knows that that king could have, even though she's the queen, she knows that king could have her killed for approaching the throne uninvited. And we are supposed to see and understand the Holy of Holies as a similar kind of throne room. Now, on the Day of Atonement, that was the one day a year the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would make several sacrifices. And then he would enter into the holy place, so not yet into the Holy of Holies. And he would burn a bunch of incense, and that incense would make a cloud. And that cloud was to shield the high priest from the presence of God. And then he would go in and he'd sprinkle blood to make atonement. In Leviticus 16, 31, where we read about the Day of Atonement... God himself refers to this day, the day of atonement, as the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. If you check this out, your Bible might say a Sabbath of solemn rest or something similar. But the original language is a Sabbath of Sabbath. This phrase is like saying king of kings or holy of holies. Saying Sabbath of Sabbaths is describing the singular excellence of the Day of Atonement compared to all other Sabbaths. And what is the Sabbath? It's a day of rest. So the Day of Atonement is the quintessential day of rest. This one time a year when the high priest passes through the veil and enters into God's presence and makes atonement for sins... This is the day of rest, par excellence. How much better then is the rest we receive when Jesus Christ passes not through the veil, but through the heavens themselves and enters into the very truly heavenly throne room of God to intercede on our behalf and make atonement for us. Because that is what Hebrews 4:14 4, and 16 is describing. We have a great high priest that has passed through not a veil, not a curtain, which the veil and curtain would have been purple and blue and would have, and had cherubim, angels on it, which would have evoked heaven. He hasn't passed through this curtain. He has passed through the real thing. He has passed through the heavens and his name is Jesus. You know, it's really interesting about the name Jesus. Uh, maybe lots of things, but it's the exact same name as Joshua. Exact same name. Our English Bibles translate them differently, but they are exactly the same. You have the Old Testament warrior prophet who passed through. He passed through the barrier of the promised land, the Jordan River. He passes through the Jordan River and he goes all across the promised land and he conquers in the name of the Lord. That Joshua, son of none, that Jesus Even with all that, he couldn't offer rest. But the high priest who has passed through the heavens and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that Joshua, that Jesus, the Son of God, has given us rest. And it's not a psychological rest, it is not a mood or a state of mind, it is an experiential reality. It is the holy presence of the living God ruling with power as king that gives rest. It's the rest of settled victory. It's a rest that has removed enemies and opposition. And we have no greater enemy, no greater opposition than God himself when we are sinners. As sinners, our greatest enemy is God. And if we have been reconciled to God What do we have to fear? Who can come against us? How could we not have rest? Christ has freed us from our sins, washed us of their stain, and is in the heavenly throne room interceding on our behalf, having reconciled us to God. That's not to say there are not still enemies That's not to say there are not people or powers who would like to see you, us, the church, destroyed. But it's to say with Romans 8.31 and following. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Because those words are true, we have rest. And that rest cannot be found anywhere else but Jesus Christ, our great high priest. The only question... Is do you really want that rest? The question isn't whether or not you want rest. I think most people do want some kind of rest. No matter how hardworking or busy or whatever you like to be. Everyone desires some kind of rest. The question is whether or not the rest you want is God's rest. Are you seeking, desiring, longing for the kingdom of God? Is your desire your heart to dwell with God in submission and obedience to his power and authority. See this passage worked well in its original context because the people did want to enter God's rest. More than anything, they wanted God's rest in the midst of their suffering. They wanted to dwell in the ruling presence of the Almighty where their enemies were gone. They just weren't sure if Jesus was, in fact, the way to do it. Now, people today, I think, are afraid of God because they love their freedom. They don't want anyone, not even God, telling them what to do or who to be. But I think today, people, uh, people today are also afraid of God because they're afraid of their own faults and failures. See, if you can avoid God and you can avoid God's perfect standard, then maybe you can ignore your mistakes. Maybe you can ignore the work that you should do to fix those mistakes and to make things right as much as you are able. And so people fear God, they're afraid of God, because they don't want to be exposed for the failures and sinners that they are. But that's a little, or maybe even a lot, like avoiding the dentist. Because you're afraid they will find cavities. Nobody wants cavities. But the one person you want to see if you have them is the dentist. Because the dentist is the one person who can do something about it. Our passage this morning tells us to draw near because Jesus knows our weakness, He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows that the road of righteousness can be a bear. He bore his own cross to Calvary. Not only does Christ know our weakness, he is the one person who can do something about it. In the words of Hebrews 5.9, it says, He has become the source of eternal salvation. He has opened the way to the throne of grace where we can find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And he has accomplished this on your behalf. Not as a conquering warrior. But as a sacrificial high priest. And we must simply go to him. For now in prayer. One day face to face. And if we hold fast to our confession. And we hold fast to Jesus. And approach him in prayer. We will find a rest greater than any other rest. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to live in your rest. God, knowing that the rest you provide isn't for us to lay our heads down and do nothing and, and give away all responsibility, but to know that uh, the responsibilities you've given to us now, God, we've got the wind behind our sails, the currents at our back, all of these things, God, pushing us forward, pushing us onward, where the work you've given us to do is restful work because it's work that's happening knowing that you are king, that you are Lord, that you are in control. God, thank you for sending your son, your own son, your your one and only son to do this work for us. Thank you for the beautiful picture that you gave to us thousands of years ago in the middle, near near eastern desert (laughs) when you had these people build this tent as a symbol and a sign for us to understand what your son what jesus would come and do one day and the all in the wonder of the holy of holies the all in the wonder of the tabernacle is nothing compared to what christ has accomplished for us help us know that rest Help us know that we are reconciled to you and that our sins have been forgiven and the stain has been washed and that we are free of our sins and that the way into your ruling presence where we find the only real and true rest has been opened to us. And let us rejoice. Let us rejoice in that. Father, I pray that we as a church would help one another see that as we face trials and troubles in this life and that. Thank you for the gift of the church uh, in helping one another and equipping one another to not drift away, to not fall away, and to keep our eyes fixed on you. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all the, the, the good things you've given to us. And thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.